You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey gals, welcome back to The Devoted Podcast. So here we are. We are on the third part to the Beautiful Design series. So if you did not catch the first two, like I'm going to repeat myself probably each one on these, but I think it's important for us to kind of listen to these in order. So if you are just catching this on number three, go back and maybe catch the first one. We did an introduction to this series. And then last week we talked about the authority of scripture and is it the boss of us or is it not? And that one is really crucial because where you land on God's word and what you think about it, what you've chosen to submit yourself to or not is going to be really critical really for everything in your life, for sure. But as particularly as what we are working on in this series is talking about the way in which we are designed. And if God, who is our creator and our designer, who has given us his word to say, hey, this was my plan. This is how it was. We have to get that from somewhere. We got to get that from God's word. So that's why last week I spent some time really focusing on the inspired and inerrant perfect word of God and that it really has all the authority in the world to 100% be the boss of us, to take ourselves and all of our, you know, ideas and reasons and opinions and just make sure we are making sure that lines up with what God's word says. So in some ways, I feel like these those first two episodes that we did in the series were sort of the easiest, if I'm being honest. What's coming in these next episodes are, are likely some of the things that will highlight some stuff that for some, it can be really difficult to swallow. And here is what I want to say right out of the gate with this, because if that's you and man, maybe the church you've been in or maybe how you were raised, you've had a lot of notions of these things that you've just not really thought about it, perhaps in, in the way that I might present it here. I just want you to know that you're being met with all the compassion in the world on this. We all struggle with different things. Our sin nature, it's going to come up in pretty much every facet of our life, right? And these areas of defining who we are and recognizing our our roles and God's created design, it's no different. Our sin nature, guys, really just it permeates everything we do and everything we touch. So you're not alone in that. I am in that boat. We are all in that boat. The purpose of this, though, is, is just to spend some time and really look at what God's word says for us about some really cool things. And and again, what I am just hoping that you guys hear out of this, and and again, sometimes I just wish you guys could see me sitting here in my podcast closet, because I got a big smile on my face. Because I truly do believe that these words that the Lord has for us, they're so good. They are so good. And I'll, I'll reference you back to the first one when we talked about that anything that all of this comes from, it's, it's coming from this context of the Lord's great love for us. You know, he is so, so good. I think about how loving it is that the Lord provided his word at all. Have you ever thought about that? He really seriously could have just let us just figure it out. I remember when Chris and I left the hospital with our firstborn. Okay. And I'm sure if you've ever been a new parent and you have that first moment where you get in the car and you, you know, you're trying to figure out the five point harness and get your kid in the car seat and all this stuff. And then the nurse like helps you and puts you in the car and you have this little human in the back seat, in the car seat, and then they just let you leave. And Chris and I were kind of stunned. You just, you leave the parking lot going, they're just going to send us out with this human that we know nothing about what we're doing, no instruction booklet, no nothing. I think that God's word to us in some way, it in itself exemplifies just how loving he is 
because he gave us a book. He gave us his word, and it is the instructions for how all of this is supposed to go together. But not only did he just give us his word, his word is so prescriptive. It's detailed even, isn't it? I think about if we were in an airport and a little kiddo came up to you and you're towering over him and he's kind of coming up and he's, he's pulling on your leg a little bit to get some help. What would you do? Do you just ignore him? Do you just kind of keep on? No, of course not. You'd, you'd stoop down and you'd get to his level and you'd, you'd get to know his name, you know, make him feel a little more comfortable. And then you'd, you'd take his little hand and you'd help him to wherever he needed to go, because that would, you know, to keep him safe, make sure he gets safely where he needs to be. I think of that image a bit when I think of the goodness, the love that the Lord has for us, that here he gives us his word. It's very prescriptive and it's kind. And he's not doing in a overbearing, just lording over us kind of way. He, he's going, let me help you. Let me take you to where you need to be safely. In Matthew 7, 11, it says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We love to give our kids presents, right? We love it. We all just had Christmas last month, and it was great. And yet those things are so, so small in comparison to how much the Lord loves us and wants to give us good gifts. He is our good, good God. And he gives us his word and his beautiful design for us because he loves us. He made us and he knows what is best for us. So I wanted to just reiterate that just a little bit. We talked about that in the first one because I think we need to start and begin with that absolute certainty of who God is, and it will greatly inform what he says about who we are and how and, and for what we are designed. Elizabeth Elliot has a little booklet, strongly recommend it. It's called Let Me Be a Woman. And I'm going to quote it a couple times without this episode. It'll probably come up throughout many of these episodes. I actually were trying to get uh, copies of it that it'll be in the Athey bookstore if you guys are interested. It's not an expensive little book, but it's called Let Me Be a Woman. And here's one of the things she says in it. She says, we are called to be women. The fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian. But the fact that I am a Christian does make me a different kind of woman. I think that is so true. We are different kind of women knowing how God designed us to be. God's design begins with his creation. And so in this episode, we're going to spend a lot of time going back to Genesis because I want us to look at the distinctness, the fact that there are male and female, the fact that there are feminine traits and masculine traits that are all part of God's beautiful design for us. So starting at Genesis 127, that's where you got to start in this conversation. If you're going to talk about two distinct genders, he says, so God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Really basic, obvious place to start, right? Here's the deal. He says some, some pretty important things for us to get right there. First, that we're created in his image. So this speaks to our innate value that cannot be taken away or diminished in any way. He created us in his image. And this is really, I don't even think we quite get this. I don't. I don't even know how to get my brain quite around the, really the profound reality that God created male and female in his image. What is that even all saying? But it certainly speaks to the fact that we have intrinsic value right there. Because of all the creation, we're the only ones, male and female, 
that have that, that were created in his image. The animals weren't. Nothing else, the trees, anything else in creation, nothing else was created in his image. But male and female, we were created and created in his own image. Now, that part I just said, the male and female part, this is the piece that it seems pretty obvious, but here's where you have to go. To deny that there are only two genders is really to just call scripture here a lie. We had covered the authority of scripture last week, the inerrant, inspired word of God. If you're just going to write, and I have to say this, right? I mean, somebody probably several years ago wouldn't even really know what we're talking about. What do you mean there would be more than two genders? But now we all know that this is regularly in the news that, oh my goodness, I don't even know what the number is up to how many genders that it is reported that we can have. This just is not a thing. So there are two genders. To say anything else is just to call God's word a lie. It's just to say it's not. This is one of the things R.C. Sproul said one time. He says, some parts of the Bible are so clear and simple that they are offensive to those suffering from intellectual arrogance. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too harsh, but really, I mean, this is where after we've come from that episode last week of looking at the authority of Scripture, inspired, God-breathed is what we're talking about here. And it says that there are male and female. So if we're going to cultural layer on that and say, no, 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 there can actually be this gender and this gender and this gender. It's a very simple passage, but when we add all those things to it, we are suffering from our own intellectual arrogance that we know more than God who wrote that. Now, the purpose of this episode is not necessarily to delve into our current transgender culture. So much could be said there. That that truly is a hurting community of people that we need to show great compassion to. Gender dysphoria is real, and it is something that we need to extend compassion and get help to those that suffer in those in those areas. However, I do fear that much of what we see in our culture, especially among younger kids, as it comes to identifying as some other gender, is largely from a culture that has just validated and celebrated and almost made the lie trendy. It makes them feel like they belong and different things like that. So it is really, I think, unbelievably hurtful what as a culture, our response has been to very hurting community of people. Because what we are doing is just we are continuing to validate and affirm and celebrate a lie. And the thing is, is it has very real ramifications. I was looking up some statistics on this and 32 to 50% of people with gender dysphoria attempt suicide. That's an extraordinarily high rate of people a number that attempts suicide. 26% that struggle with gender dysphoria resort to substance abuse. So our world's response is not helping this community. They will try to tell you that, oh, it's you because you aren't affirming the gender they've chosen. You aren't affirming the lie that you are the one that is causing that. And that's just not true. We don't help them by affirming a lie. Now, This also isn't something that is cured by just quoting Genesis 127 or, you know, making them feel ostracized and anything like that. And we've talked about this at length on on the podcast. We had Kathy Grace Duncan on, and it's an episode called Who Am I? And I'll put the link in the show notes, because if you didn't catch that one, that was a really good one from someone who actually the Lord has redeemed and the Lord has brought through the transgender lifestyle. And it's a much more of a lengthy discussion and something that should be dealt with with great care. But as it pertains for our conversation today, that there's two genders, there's two things I want us to pull out that we are created in his image and male and female, 
we were created. So then let's go to the next chapter in Genesis, Genesis 2.18, where it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then down in verse 20, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the creation of two genders, so that that's where Genesis spells it all out for us. Just some general observations here about that there are male and female. God said it was not good that man should dwell alone. It's so funny. You know, you go through Genesis and the creation account and, you know, God created the earth and the sky and he said it is good and God created the the animals and, you know, and it was good. And he just keeps saying it goes, it was good. It was good. It was good. And then it gets to God created man and he said, it is not good that man should dwell alone. So God sees that it's not going to work. There needed to be a helper that would be fit for him. So this then gives us kind of a question here. Well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He has seen all the unique nature of his creation. He could have just made another male, right? He could have. If the only qualification was that that the man shouldn't be alone, well, why didn't he just make another male? But the answer is in the scripture as well, because it says that there was not found a helper that was fit for him. So this is already, it's introducing this idea that there, there's this complementarian relationship that's needed between Adam, male, and who would be a helper fit for him. They needed to, there were some complementary nature, uh, characteristics that needed to come together for them. And previously, there was no helper fit for him. So woman is created, she's created out of man which I think it's unique in this as well, because that's the only thing in creation that we see that was created that way. It specifically says he put Adam to sleep and then out of Adam, he fashioned woman. I love this because Adam, he's made out of the dust of the earth. Woman is made out of the, from the man's side. And there's some really cool pictures here that uh, we're going to look at more closely in a future episode on this series. But there's a unique quality that's already been made here. We have two genders, one uh, male, one female. It's partially because one of the things it says it was not good that man should dwell alone. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but I do think this is important to notice here that just all the way from our very beginning, from our very created order, it says that we aren't to be alone. This isn't a word just to married women. This goes back to the reasons we are created, that we are not to be alone. And I I feel like I need to say this because we really are a a really lonely and isolated people right now. A survey that NPR did of people that they asked, three out of five Americans said that they are lonely. In that same survey, they were kind of tracking like their social media use, like who identifies with with heavy social media use and, and all that. And of those that heavily use social media, 73% said that they were the most lonely. And of those that were maybe light users of social media, even 52% of those said they identified as being very lonely. We found ourselves in a culture that is remarkably connected and remarkably isolated all at the same time. 
that's one of the things I love so much about when you just look to scripture and you look to the very beginning and, and how we were created and you see that there was this right from the very get-go that God says we aren't to be alone. We were to be in fellowship with one another. It's part of our created design. But I want to focus in on our distinctness here because this is where lines have just been really blurred, I think. I don't know how far back we want to go, but for sure the last couple of years, we definitely see just a blurring of gender lines. And what does denying gender leave us with? I, I think we are almost seeing a, from culture's perspective, a death of femininity and masculinity. This is a strange phenomenon we are seeing right now. Or perhaps it isn't strange so much as it's perhaps telling what happens when you take away the distinctness and the uniqueness and replace it with you're all the same, just sameness. And that's pretty much what's happening. And this began far more subtly than our fairly recent transgender movement. You can look back even decades and see where this was beginning in the feminist movement. Now, full disclosure, I am largely very critical of the feminist movement and all of its waves. So, but bear with me, I'll explain where the breakdown is on this. There was value, I believe, in the first, what they call the first wave of feminism, which is largely the suffragettes and, and all of that kind of stuff. But the reason is because ultimately that first wave, I think, pointed us to a biblical perscriptive. Prior to what we refer to as the women's suffrage movement. Largely, women could not own property. They could not vote. They couldn't work outside the home. They were really, they didn't support education for women. So that was the types of things that the very first, if we want to call them feminists, that's what they were fighting for. I, I kind of died just to even call them that because I really think those early women, they were Christian women, by and large, the things that they were fighting for, I think they would just absolutely roll over in their graves if they could see what feminists today support and march for. But by and large, those are the types of things that they were fighting for. The reason I point to those saying that that's an agenda, if we will, that we can support because there's things that the Bible supports about that. The Bible is remarkably freeing to women. And you can look at cultures and countries where Christianity has spread, and you will see the most free societies for women. Just briefly, what does the Bible say about some of the things? Women owning property, for example. Numbers 27, yeah, all the way back in the Old Testament. You can look at where they were sanctioning for women to own property. Or in number 36, it talks about that women who could marry who they wanted. Now, with voting, I can't necessarily make a biblical note on that because there was not representative government as we know it today. But I don't think we see anything that in Scripture that would prohibit this either. What about women working in the Bible? Do we see that? Well, in Proverbs 31, I think that's probably our very industrious woman that we see there in Proverbs 31. It says in verse 13 that she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Verse 14, she brings food from afar. Verse 15, she provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So she has servants of some kind. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. So this is an industrious woman that has participated in the economy in some way. And she's buying and selling, uh, selling of her own goods things, and also negotiating things that she's going to buy. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. So there's all these things that this Proverbs 31 woman who's listed as a woman of great value 
that she does. She's a worker here. In the New Testament, we see Lydia is one example. There's others, but Lydia in Acts 16, she was a maker of purple cloth, which likely indicates because purple, the dye that was used for making clothes that would be that color was hard to come by. And so it likely indicates that she was a very wealthy woman. And she then used her resources to support the ministry of the early church. So there is not some biblical universal, you know, put down to women working even outside the home. So just the fact that a woman works outside the home is not to say that she's operating outside of God's biblical and created design. Now, having said that, I don't think it's so much as what you're doing, but why you are doing it. If you're working outside the home, why are you doing that? If you are working to climb a ladder to prove to everyone else that you can, you know, I, I can do this job just as well as anybody else. Or if you're doing it even for financial prosperity, it's not because of what you're doing maybe all the time, but why are you doing it? And if it's not because it's what the Lord has called you to, and I don't mean the a fuzzy, you know, feel good calling, like I just, this thing brings me joy. And so I need to do it. I mean, the calling in that obedience to what the Lord has called you as a woman to do in this season of your life. If you're doing it for anything else other than that, then it's just a hard stop right there. There are seasons where I think the Lord may direct you as a woman to say no to every amazing and awesome opportunity that might present itself in the way of working outside the home or in different capacities. You might be called to just say no to that. What's important is to obedience to what he calls you to in every season, and they change. They really do. I think Romans 12, 1 and 2 is always a great place to run this through the sieve of this. When Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The reason I say that I think this is a good one to run the sieve through is because several things, but notice the living sacrifice piece in that Romans 12. In our pursuit to live holy and acceptable lives to God, there will be a death, a sacrifice to our flesh and what we want sometimes. And that's okay. We live in a world that's like, man, if you want it, then you should just have it. That is just, no, that is not what the Bible tells us. It says, do not conform to this world. I mean, just that. I mean, probably if the world is doing it and it's all the rage, then we probably just shouldn't be. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You will be able to discern what God's will is for this season, for right now, for whatever the thing is that you're praying about right now. Should I do take this volunteer opportunity right now? Should I do this job right now? Those are all things that you need to really pray that the Lord would transform you by the renewal of your mind, and you'll be able to discern what his will is for that in this season. So run things through Romans 12, 1 and 2, and be cautious in being led by your own wants and feelings. You know, regardless of how amazing that opportunity seems to be, you will thrive and be so much more content doing the thing that the Lord has called you to do, even if it doesn't even make numbers and, you know, sense all that on paper. The Lord truly does honor when you obey what he's called you to do. 
What about education? Does the Bible support, you know, women not being educated? Yeah, that's not going to work either. You know, I love the example in Luke 10, when Mary and Martha, so those were the sisters of Lazarus, and it says that, you know, Martha was around the house doing all the things and getting everything done and cooking and cleaning. But it says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And I love this because, you know, something we kind of miss because we're not, you know, super well versed in in the culture at that time. But, you know, Jesus as rabbi, that was kind of a posture that if you were going to learn from the rabbi, you sat at his feet and you were learning. So here's Mary sitting at Jesus's feet and it says, listen to his teaching. And so when Martha criticizes and says, hey, you know, Jesus, you know, tell my sister to come help me. Jesus tells her that Mary has chosen the better portion. So he says, no, sorry, Martha. This is, Mary's chosen the right thing to do. So women learned around Jesus. There was education, if you will, in that regard. First Timothy 2.11, we'll cover this one more in depth, but give you a sneak peek of this one. That's one where the one where it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, we'll, we'll talk about that verse, like I said, in more fuller context, but it just right there, let the woman learn. So Paul also encouraging women to be educated. This is not a thing that biblically is supported that women cannot be educated. And, and just in general, Jesus's treatment of women was just astounding and extremely countercultural for the day. We'll probably talk about that in a different episode, but an, an honoring and a regard for women for sure. So the early, early feminists, again, I almost just don't even want to call them that, but those early suffragettes, okay, Christian women, those were the things that they were supporting for or that they were fighting for, that women would be able to be educated on all of those things that I just mentioned there. But then things took a real dark turn. <laughs> when we get to the second, third, and you know, future waves of feminism, that's where things became more of a war cry of things that are not just what Christ called us to be as women, but truly just just sin. That's when the second and third waves, especially the second one was where we first saw, kind of started to hear the my body, my choice and the beginnings of the, the sexual revolution. And just to take that one with the sexual revolution, just a little bit of an example on this one. Man, talk about something that when we want to do what we want over what God intends, just an absolute recipe for disaster. And I'm not laying blame of the sexual revolution just on women. No, that would not be right. But it's just not honest to not own the part that feminism really played in this. God created sex to be between a husband and wife. Children were by biblical design intended to be born within marriage, within a family. And that would have been a message that this round of feminism would most definitely not been into, right? Just be free and be independent and all of these things. And the consequences of these choices and even just these cultural moves that started to happen have left us in, in just a mess. Recent estimates, I looked at this survey that showed that about 40% of births in the United States occur outside of marriage today. This is crazy to me. This is up from 28% in 1990. That's a significant increase. And I said today that actually that one came out from Child Trends in 2016. From 1990, 28% to 2016, 40% of births in the United States were occurring outside of marriage. And so then you think, well, you know, isn't this fine? You know, just women can have children with whomever. You really don't need the constructs of marriage and all these restrictions. You know, that's what the world wants to tell you. But then 
the results of this study conclude that compared with traditional families, so they define traditional families as a mom and a dad, and then they compare them with what they call fragile families, and that would be someone that a child that's born with just a mom, are more likely to they themselves become parents in their teens or more likely to have children with other partners. They're more likely to be poor. They're more likely to suffer from depression, struggle from substance abuse, and many to be incarcerated in prison. Survey from the Huffington Post that came out. So there are consequences to these choices. But man, the mantra, one of those early feminists, Susan B. Anthony, one of the things she said she would say, independence is happiness. Is it now? You know, because they identified that to be independent and not to have to be confined to a man, confined to your husband, that was happiness. The consequences of that so-called independence, I don't think has borne out very well for our culture. The history of, of feminism is it's predominantly dark. And I find that it's just difficult as you see the different pieces of feminism that have even kind of seeped into the church. And you sort of see this version, this kind of this Christian feminism that it's sometimes subtle, but then sometimes it's not. And, and it really is pushing against God's design and the authority of his word. So definitely there's some ramifications of some of the feminist war cries that we had and some of the agendas that were there. But I think overall, as I look at, as we want to see, how are we doing at maintaining the distinctness and the uniqueness of male and female, being feminine, being masculine, really the result of radical feminism has fought to basically make those distinctions between men and women just non-existent. It was basically like, if a man can do it well, then there's a woman who could do it better. You know, that's kind of been the thinking. Really, the feminist movement fought for us just to not be feminine in a lot of ways. And that was a good thing in their thinking. It's typically it will it's going to elevate one gender, in this case, feminists at the cost of another. I always think of 90s sitcoms when I think of this. And I have to say 90s because, to be honest, I really don't think I've watched an entire sitcom in probably over a decade or two. But the stereotype is there. That's where it kind of began. You know, the men were stupid. And they just kind of sat in their chair. And man, if, if they didn't have a woman, they couldn't do anything. And it was funny, right? They made it like he, the, the husband was just kind of always the joke. And if it weren't for his wife, then he really wouldn't be able to do anything. And the man half the time was one step up from like caveman, basically. It was a tremendous disservice and disrespect, really, to the distinctness and the uniqueness. And really, how amazing two genders are. It didn't celebrate the distinct strengths that men have. It didn't celebrate the distinct strengths that women have. Instead, it was making women like they're the brains of the operation. They can do everything better anyway. And men, well, they're just the idiots in the room that we have to tolerate. I mean, that sounds harsh, but that is honestly, that's what the joke has become. But in so doing all of this and blurring these lines, it's kind of become where there isn't doesn't need to be women. In fact, kind of women are being erased. I mean, who would have thought we would be saying this? This just this last year, I think, was the first time when we heard the term birthing people. I mean, are you serious? That meaning that you couldn't call women or you couldn't call mothers. You had to call them birthing people. This is crazy. With the transgender debate, we have all kinds of biological males that are competing in women's sports. And it's just crazy. And it puts like the biological differences between men and women on open display 
but they're still trying to make it sound like, well, it's just sameness. There's no different. But here's the thing. Men and women are different. They are different. And it's funny that this needs to be said. And the thing is, it's a good thing. And it's a, an according to design thing. Remember Genesis 1:27, male and female, he created them separate, different. He gave them different roles even. Again, should be super obvious. Physically, men by and large are stronger. This really isn't a stumper, is it, right? We aren't. We as women, we aren't as fast typically as men. Our reflexes are different. Our body types are different. Men respond and react differently in just about every kind of situation. I mean, think about something that is that is stressful. How do you respond versus how would your brother or your husband or your dad respond? It's going to be different. I'm not trying to fall into too much of, because obviously there's exceptions that are made and all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, those two responses between how a guy is going to respond to something stressful and how a woman is going to respond is going to be real different. And that's a good thing. I think of how would you respond? I remember when uh, living on the ranch, it was not uncommon to see snakes. Okay, I see a snake. I'm not a big fan. Now, some of this of my dad's response has rubbed off on me over the years, and it doesn't alarm me quite as much. But I remember as a kid seeing that snake and watching my dad's response. He was quick. He was decisive. There was basically zero alarm. And somehow there was a shovel in his hand like right away. So very different than what my response is. Or how about planning a wedding? How do you or how would you respond in planning a wedding versus your fiance or brother or dad. Gals, I worked weddings for 18 years. Trust me, it is very different. It's different. And different isn't bad. We really are being told today that different is not good, you know, that we need to have sameness. But no, different isn't bad. Since we can look back to God's original design that there would be two separate genders, male and female, we can infer that God wanted us to be different. And here's what's sad. Our world doesn't want us to be different. One can't be above another, unless if you're the feminist, then the women have to be above the men. One can't have a different or better skill set. It's got to be sameness. It's got to be equal. And that might sound good, but sameness is not equivalent to God's beautiful design. Sameness isn't even realistic if we wanted it to be, biologically for sure. But even practically, we are different by design. And that is amazing. What's cool about masculinity? There's a lot of things. Sometimes they'll look back at things and go, oh, well, chivalry is dead where, you know, men cared for women and protected them. And but really, do we want chivalry to be dead? You know, men have a protective nature about them that is just natural to them. They have a sense of adventure and a desire for adrenaline that I quite honestly can't really comprehend. Not my flavor. They're providers. They physically and even emotionally bear more than we can many, many, many times. A while back, the term toxic masculinity started to trend. While anyone male or female can lord authority and power over someone, this trend, I felt it just did a tremendous disservice to the men in our society. This morning, I was watching a video on social media, and it was a good Samaritan. Or basically what had happened is there was an older lady that was leaving a grocery store, and a guy came and snatched her purse. And she starts, you know, calling out for someone to help her. And this good Samaritan, this guy comes tearing after this uh, guy who snatched the purse. And he, you, you, it's all caught on video. And you, and you see this video of this good Samaritan absolutely taking down <laughs> this purse snatcher. And he's holding him down, definitely going crazy on this guy. 
and then, then there were sweet pictures after that of showing this older lady and and this man, you know, he was giving her a big hug and bringing her a purse. And it was great. But, you know, society overall, they want to say, well, we don't want that. That's toxic masculinity. No, no, it's not. That term, probably the most innocent contention that that term had, if there was one, was to argue that men shouldn't suppress emotions, that they should just be tough all the time. And again, caution on preconceived ideas of masculinity on this one. We tend to think that when we read the Old Testament about Esau, and he was, our pastor always likes to call him Mr. Field and Stream, that he was the real man. But Jacob, it says, was smooth. But Romans tells us that it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. So we we have to be careful about our preconceived ideas of what we think masculinity, I guess, really looks like. But you're just fooling yourself to deny that there are some distinctiveness between things that uh, men that we really appreciate about men. And we want them to have those masculine traits. We want them to be protectors and providers. But ultimately, the, the best example of biblical manhood is always going to come with imitating Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ultimately, our example is always going to be that, to walk in love. And we want the men in our lives, we want them to walk in that way. But to deny that there is still a separateness and to not be men isn't right either. First Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. I love this one. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So there's great things about masculinity. What's cool about femininity? Man, ladies, women are nurturers, children, pets, even plants. We, well, my plants die. I do try to nurture them though, but we take care of things. That That is what is common and comfortable and just we fit right into with that. We're industrious. We are insightful. We're empathetic. Now, I think we have to be careful with this one. Sometimes we also, because emotions, which are a gift, but we can lead with emotion as well. And that is something we need to be careful of. We have a tendency to be a little bit more fragile. And I kind of mean that in the best sense of the word. I love our Pastor Brett. He gives the analogy of that uh, women are like the fine wine glass and men are like the root beer mug. You know, which one is a more beautiful thing to look at? Well, the wine glass. But the root beer mug, well, you can kind of knock it around. It doesn't really get dinged up as easily. They both have the same value in that they are both capable of holding liquid. They have function, but they look very different. They function even differently in how, whether one is fragile or, or one you can knock around a little bit more. I like that picture. Now take the Lord's amazingly creative design for there to be differences, and then up that by our own individual uniqueness. I love this. You know, Chris, my husband, Chris, has a way of being sometimes more sensitive to my voice. I even think about when they were little. Sometimes he was just more sensitive to things with them than I was. And I feel like a little bit this was sort of cue ranch life and a little bit too much suck it up buttercup. That was that was my style. But he had such a great balance of being able to teach the kids to be strong and to be little men, even when they're six and seven. But he was able to also be sensitive to them in that way. So it's it's interesting how there's these unique ways that an individual can even show that 
apart from maybe somebody else's husband or another dad. They can be different. But given that, I'm still a nurturer to the death. You know, that's definitely going to be my thing. It's moms that freak out if their kids haven't eaten or slept enough or if they're sick. You know, we think about those kinds of things. We just can't turn it off. I think of this every time there's babies in church. So if you've been to Athey in person, we really encourage that mamas use the nursery. It's free childcare. It's awesome. It's amazing what happens when a baby cries in church. Because as soon as you just, and it might not even be a cry, gals, it might just be this little tiny little cooing noise. And literally every mom, aunt, and grandma in the room has, you know, pivoted their head and they are locked in on what's up with that baby. Does the baby need to eat? You know, is it okay? Is it cold? I mean, this is just what we do. We're nurturers and we cannot turn it off. You get this even if you don't have kids. You can see a hurt bird or a pet or, a, you know, someone that is homeless on the corner that you're, you know, at an intersection you're turning on. We just have this compassion and this nurture to we want to take care of things. That's us. That's something that we are uniquely wired to be. Our unique differences just aren't bad things. They are, one, consistent with God's design and intent. And two, they enable us to serve the Lord in specific ways that only he created you to do it quite like you do it. So what has our gender neutral world given us? What what is this, you know, by the killing off of masculinity and femininity, what do we got here? You know, are men better off? Today, it's kind of a mark against you if you're a man. I mean, I mean, truly, if men want to get a job promotion or a leadership position, I've even heard stories of college kids being told if they're male to not speak in a classroom that's led by a woman professor because they've had their day. And so they can be silent in the class the entire. I mean, it's not a mark of honor to be a man in our culture right now. And the reason is just because they're men and it makes zero sense. So are men better off with this climate that we have here and this getting rid of gender and this putting down of our distinctness and our uniqueness? I, men are not better off. How, are women better off? I don't think you can say one has been more disturbed by the other, but truly, women are fed this lie that they say you can have it all. And so we'll then even hear us, well, we want it all. This is such a funny lie to me, because if you actually let that play out, where does that construct ever work? the want it all thing. You can eat all the cake you want all the time and just have zero downside, zero side effects. No, that wouldn't work. How about I want the beaches of Hawaii and the castles of Ireland at the same time? Nope. Well, but I want it all. I want it. It doesn't matter. That's not possible. We are told that we can have it all, but that is a lie regardless of your gender. And it really brings us back full circle to where we began with creation. It says it was not good that man should dwell alone. He needed someone else. Men cannot have it all. Women can have it all. This is just a lie of Satan to lure you into choices that will defy God's beautiful design for you. Is our world better off? Our world is not well right now, is it? It's a mess. As women, we're one of two of the only created beings that are bearers of the image of God. We cannot deny our responsibility in our rebellion against God's design. And it's actually pretty simple. If we believe the Bible is God's perfect and inspired word of God, and it says that we are created different, uniquely, 
then it would make sense that the same place that provided us that foundational piece of who we are will then also have the authority to tell us how to be that, how to be the women, the woman that God created you to be. But as you've already heard in this episode, and you'll hear me say again in future ones, the roles and the how we glorify our creator by walking in obedience to him will not be culturally popular. It will not be trendy. And you may be even considered weird or even ignorant for choosing this. But it's sort of, you know, the instruction itself might not feel good, but it's funny how the acting on the instruction feels kind of like the genes we talked about in the first episode, that when you put them on the right way, it's just, this is the way it works. This, yeah, this is right. I can't wait to talk about submission on this one. And I know you're like, really? No, seriously. I think that one is, is such a great passage and such a gift to us. But I like it so much, we're going to save that one for a whole episode by itself. But sometimes we don't like the instruction because it didn't feel good, you know? But it's the obedience of it. It's the acting on it that we find, huh, yeah, this actually is what I should be doing. In that same book, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, the book that I referenced earlier, Elizabeth Elliot says, does it mean always doing what we feel like doing and not doing what we don't? It means discipline. It means doing the thing we are meant for. What are we meant to do? Now, I don't want to oversell the, you know, quote unquote, easy nature of this, your flesh, my flesh will want to rise up. You'll notice thoughts of, well, I deserve, or it's not fair, or, you know, where's the equality? Well, that's where we're going to go next week is on the equality piece. What does the Bible really have to say about that? But for now, let me leave you with maybe a little challenge, but hopefully a whole lot of encouragement to be the woman God designed you to be. Just be exactly who he made you to be. Go with his design for you and not the world's. Think about it. Really think about it. Write it out even if you want. Write out what the world's picture of what a woman is and what God says a woman is. And where the two match up, great. But more often than not, you'll find that the world's design for you and me is not just wrong, but it stands in total defiance of God and his word. For us to be unique as women, to actually be women, feminine even. It's almost like a bad word these days. But to really be the woman that God called you to be, as you were designed to be. God's beautiful design is for two genders to work together for His glory. That's it for this week, but don't miss next week because we're going to dive into equality. And if that's really something we should be clamoring for as much as the world tells us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of AV Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at avcreek.com.